everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Julie Bogart, and we're going to dive into uh, a lot of uh, things around uh, her book, Raising Critical Thinkers, and learning and having difficult conversations and um, and having, um, yeah, just kind of the, the gamut. I was so excited whenever, um, you know, I found this book and, you know, found, uh, yeah, just found this, I, this idea in this book that Julie created. And I'll tell you why here in just a minute. However, I do want to let you know that if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, there is three things that drive what we do here on the learner's corner. The first one is this, is that we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone And the second thing is very much like it, that we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything. And both of those things are true regardless of whether or not we completely agree with whoever we are talking about or or whatever subject that we're talking about as well. And, uh, and the third one is simply this as well, is that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And we cover literally all of those things here on the podcast. And that's really why, um, you know, because we're talking about critical thinking, which encompasses a lot of uh, those core values and those uh, beliefs as well. And so I'll tell you about uh, Julie here in a minute and uh, and why I'm so interested in talking about this. But if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast or whether or not you've been listening uh, for a while, I would love to hear from you about some of the things that you're learning from, some of the things and the conversations that you're having or that you would love us to have on the podcast or guests or topics that you would love us to cover as well. And the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also going to link uh, to... Um, the blog, the blog, and my newsletter that I have, which uh, gives a lot of recommendations on some of the things that I'm learning from as well. Uh, resources, podcasts, uh, sometimes songs, articles, videos, all, all of that other good stuff as well. Now, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Julie, and then I want to tell you about why, um, why I was so interested in having this conversation. So. Julie Bogart is the creator of the award-winning Innovative Brave Writer program teaching writing or teaching writing and language arts to thousands of families every year. She homeschooled her five now grown children for 17 years and is the founder of Brave Learner Home, which supports homeschooling parents through coaching and teaching. She also taught as an adjunct professor of theology at Xavier University, and she is also the author of the brave learner and raising critical thinkers with the subtitle being a parent's guide to growing wise kids in the digital age. Now this idea of critical thinking is something that I have been uh, trying to learn more about and really curious about for I'll say um, it's been well over a year might might be uh, two years but I've really just been trying to think about this a whole lot. And so I've been keeping my eyes out for just people who are exploring this idea of learning to be critical thinkers. And sometimes, you know, we we talk about it here on the podcast, um, you know, if it's pertaining to something that, you know, someone has wrote about or created or they have thoughts on the matter. And so I remember, you know, whenever I was looking through um, some potential upcoming guests, I saw this book and I thought, 
Oh, I am so grateful uh, for Julian for the work that she's doing here on on the book. And so that's kind of the story. This is something uh, that I've been looking forward to talking with someone about for for a long time. And uh, you know, at uh, and you know something that we'll continue to he- explore here on the podcast as well. So with that, let's jump into my conversation with Julie Bogart. Well, Julie, I'm so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah. And uh, just as we're getting started, one of the things that I was really curious, not not only uh, because of your, your brand new book, you know, uh, Raising Critical Thinkers, but even like your work with Brave Learner is as well. I would be very curious to hear of like what got you interested in like just learning in general? Yeah, I was one of these moms in the 90s who had discovered the idea of home education. And I have five children and I started homeschooling them right away. So my oldest child didn't go to kindergarten, you know, he just started with me. And I was reading all different theories of education at the time and how to make learning relevant and practical to children. But not only that, I was a freelance writer. I was an editor, a ghost writer, and an author. And I was discovering that a lot of the ways education presents subjects like writing are actually counterintuitive, don't facilitate the kind of outcome that works in the professional world. And it made me suspicious of how we taught in general, how schools often approach learning. Now, just to be clear, I had a fabulous public school education. I grew up in Los Angeles and I was in a school district that actually had very innovative approaches to learning, was sort of outside of the LA Unified, it was its own district. But by the time I was an adult, all of these models of learning had been overturned in favor of year-end testing and hitting certain markers. Uh, And there was this Um, outcome-based approach to learning. And I didn't want that for my kids. I wanted this more immersive, experiential, driven by their curiosity model, certainly supplying the necessary instruction, but from this sort of um, child-centered or child-directed approach with a lot of parental support. Yeah. And, and I, I would love to hear your take on what are maybe some things that, um, that you learned about how to, how to teach people well through your experience with, uh, with teaching your own kids. Yeah. So the quote that I really love from Maria Montessori, uh, that was sort of a guiding light for me was follow your child, but follow as his leader. Follow your child, but follow as his leader. So often school is really structured kind of top down. The notion that the teachers or the school board or the textbook have all the answers and they're trying to fill empty minds, this ostensibly empty mind with information they're going to need to be a successful participant in society, whether that's a job or a voter or a factory worker or you know a good citizen. But what we've discovered, especially when you read works uh, by people like Bell Hooks or Paulo Freire, who are education reformers coming out of somewhat marginalized backgrounds, they are offering a critique of the model that says a child comes like a blank slate to school. They admit that children have full minds already. They're bringing their culture, their family of origin, their personal experiences, their religious backgrounds or non-religious backgrounds 
to the equation. And their curiosity, which is innate and naturally expressed for five years before they get to school, where they're mastering all kinds of skills and language and understanding of the world, is suddenly treated as though it's not relevant. They don't have the opportunity to sort of pursue their own course of learning. So one of the things I learned early with my kids, and partly because my oldest son was resistant to scripted learning, is that they have enough curiosity. It, I, I don't have to supply additional doses. They come curious about numbers, curious about words, curious about the stories that came before them, curious about everything outside their door. And we tend to treat some of that stuff like, well, they wouldn't be interested unless I push it. And uh, so that would be like the key lesson that I started from. Oh, maybe their curiosity is sufficient. Yeah. Talk to me about tapping into uh, the curiosity already in kids or middle school students or in high school students about like subjects that we might say, hey, as an adult, this is this is a really important subject, but maybe they don't know enough because they're not curious enough about it. Right. Um, and it's like, OK, I how do I, how do you engage people's curiosity or kids curiosity in, in those types of subjects? Right. Oh, you're just singing my song. This is the question I get all the time. So in my first book, The Brave Learner, I talk about something that I call the continent of learning. And what that means is that there is no subject, no topic, no idea that isn't adjacent to every single field of study that we want our kids to learn. So if you just take something like, for example, piano, piano, we think of as part of the arts, right? It's a musical instrument, but it's also adjacent to the mechanics of how a piano is built, the way that the levers, there's literally physics involved in the way a piano is constructed. There is biology in listening to the sound. There is science in the way sound is transmitted. There's literature written for music using musical notation. So it has its own literature, its own reading mechanism, very similar to phonics, learning to read music. It also has mathematics. We think about key signatures and the count of each measure and the way that the notes are divided into you know, quarter notes, eighth notes, 16th notes, right? Whole notes. Um, all of that is adjacent, let alone the history of music, the history of the instrument, the biographies of great composers, and then the way their lives spool out. There are comparisons between piano and organ and how what organs, excuse me, how one is related to religion and one is more related to bars. And how did that sociological effect impact the development of these two instruments? So that's just piano. We can do the same thing with video games anime, manga, we can do it with any subject. We could start with chemistry in the middle and actually look for the ways that all the subjects are adjacent, all the interests a child has. For instance, my son maybe wasn't as interested in science as a subject, but he got interested in astronomy just because there was a book we read that showed the scale of how vast the universe was. He was interested in big numbers. And before you knew it, he was like able to identify constellations, which led him to Greek mythology, which led him to understanding pieces of art in our Cincinnati Museum. And this connective tissue creates a holistic understanding of a subject rather than just saying, okay, master these facts for a test. We cram it into our working memories. 
we ex you know express it in the testing format under time pressure two weeks later we couldn't even retake the same test so this is really about creating an integrated sort of relationship to school subjects and unfortunately schools do it less well than they used to uh, when i was growing up in the 1970s my teachers were actually pretty good at it i remember going on an archaeological dig that my teacher created for us she had us um imitate Aztec art by making pots, by painting them correctly, by getting them fired. And then she had us break the pots with a hammer. And then she buried it all out in a field in Malibu Canyon and then sent us on an archeological dig. And all of our stuff was like sedimentary layers with like cardboard in between. And then we came back, we reassembled the pots. We made these little um, like museum note cards and we created a display case. So we went through all the steps of what it means to investigate history in a firsthand kind of way. And I think that's part of what's missing. Kids want investment. They want a relationship. They want to use their whole bodies. They don't just want to pass tests. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk to me about like what, what you've done or even what you found that helps um, encourage and, and even tap more into kids' natural curiosity? Yeah, there's one activity that I shared in The Brave Learner that I shared again in Raising Critical Thinkers because it's such a popular one. I call it the Great Wall of Questions. So the way it works is like this, using like a sliding glass door or a whiteboard or maybe um, a doorway in your kitchen that has kind of a slick surface. What you're going to want to do is have a stack of sticky notes and a marker. And then when your kid, I'm, I'm like holding them up for the camera. <laughs> I'm on a podcast. Um, what you want to do is jot down any question your child asks. So you might just be like in the bathroom and your child is complaining. Why did Johnny get the blue toothbrush when you knew I wanted it, mom? You can say, oh, great question. I'm going to write that down and stick it on our great wall of questions. We'll talk about that at the end of the week. Over the course of a week, collect all their questions. What is a black hole? Why does a dog run faster than a human? Um, what, what is a vegan? Like whatever questions come, some of them will be squabbly. Like how come, you know, Johnny gets the computer for a longer time than me? Uh, some of them will be, why can't I watch more video games, right? Or play more video games. That's great. Get them all up there. You know, what's the number that comes after a zillion? And then you're like, oh, zillion's not even a number. Interesting. <laughs> so you're going to write these all down, stick them on the wall. And at the end of the week, you're going to start pulling them down during dinner, like on a Sunday night. And you can have your little iPad or your laptop open or your phone handy and just talk about some of them, but allow them to accumulate. Allow your child to sit with an unanswered question. Encourage kids who are old enough to read to go back and read them and even build off of them. So if somebody says, what's a black hole? And then someone else says, what gets lost in a black hole? And then someone else says, was there a black hole mentioned on the Big Bang Theory? Like just let them build up and allow your kids to expand what they are curious about. Now, if your kids are used to not asking questions or they've, they're reticent or shy, you can lead the way. The next time you have a thought that occurs to you, that's a question, write it down and stick it on the wall and just start modeling what it looks like to sit with curiosity. 
Yeah. And that hits at something just as I was going through uh, raising critical thinkers, I, I probably had this thought, you know, at least a dozen times. I thought, man, this is so true for kids and for middle school students and high school students, but it is just as true for us adults oh, too. Absolutely. In fact, one of the tricks in writing this book is that to raise a critical thinker, of course, you need to be one. And one of the most delightful things I've found out by being on all these podcasts is everyone thinks they're good at it. <laughs> we all say we're in a critical thinking crisis, but every individual person thinks they're actually good at it. It reminds me of how people talk about themselves as drivers. They think yeah. everybody else is a terrible driver, but I've yet to meet someone who's like, but I'm a bad driver, right? Like people feel comfortable in their own skin with their own thinking. And that goes to the heart of the critical thinking uh, challenge or dilemma. And it is this, when we're only thinking about someone else's thinking, you're not actually being a critical thinker. A critical thinker has the capacity and the willingness to do what I call an academic selfie. It's taking sort of the camera lens that you're aiming at someone else and flipping it around on yourself and then looking to see your bias as it kicks into gear, the way that you're having a body or emotional reaction. Uh, I love to share this analogy. You know, I'm 60 years old, so I've been around for a while. And when Facebook first kind of came online, it was the, for my age group, it was 2009, which was the year of my 30th high school reunion. So we all hopped online. We hadn't talked in 30 years. It, that will never be true ever again. But at that point, it was absolutely true. And I'm scrolling through all of these people that I knew 30 years before, but hadn't kept up with in 30 years. And I'm like horrified. <laughs> people I thought I liked, right? You just suddenly see them post an article and I have this visceral reaction, like a surge of dismissiveness or smugness or shock that this person could believe such crazy things. That's my bias kicking into gear. That's my reactivity. That's my inability to make sense of the worldview of the person I'm talking about or thinking about or noticing. Whenever we start with a smug reaction, you can know in that moment that you're being protective of a viewpoint and you're actually not able to hear what that other person's viewpoint means for them. And that's the foundation of critical thinking. It's not to be critical, it's to actually understand the thinking. Yeah. What else gets in the way of, you know, you mentioned bias. What else gets in the way of our ability to critical think? One of the key things that I think is under the surface and we don't think about very much is our loyalty to our communities. So for instance, I'm in the home education space. Homeschoolers as a group are very defensive. We are not the mainstream. Uh, we had to fight to get it legalized so that we could have the right to homeschool. And so anytime there's any kind of critique, they cannot think straight. They're immediately like, but my family is great. Um, it works for me. How dare you say this? Those people are weird. They're not real homeschoolers, right? This is what we do when we're loyal. So our religious communities, our political beliefs, our family of origin, the university where we got our degrees or the fact that we didn't get a degree, the band that is our absolute favorite, you know, you two rage against the machine, like whoever, we're going to align ourselves with those people. And sometimes these groups are almost invisible to us. For instance, 
if you are in a long-term marriage, you might find yourself dismissive of people who talk about divorce. Conversely, if you're a divorced person, you might find yourself resistant to hearing that there's such a thing as a happy long-term marriage. Why? Because we are protective of our loyalty to the group that best represents us. And we are afraid to lose membership in that group if we take a position that doesn't reaffirm all of their beliefs, all of their tenets. This is probably the most impacting of all the features that keep us locked in one way of thinking. Yeah, I, I can even see how that would play itself in terms of um, our, our relationships yes. as well too, our, our, our loyalty to a person or to a family member or to a friend or, or anything totally. like that. No, you're hundred yeah. percent right. And in fact, it's one of the challenges of raising critical thinkers because one of the most uh, loyalty oriented communities on the planet is the nuclear family. You know, parents have a baby and they initiate instantly the parental propaganda program. Like that's their first thing they do. And they do it unwittingly. It's not like they start with, okay, here's my political views. Make sure you vote this way. They start with things like a five-year-old who doesn't wash his hands before dinner. And then the parent says, honey, go wash your hands. It's not safe to not wash your hands. Well, what is that? That's like some belief about science. And they're just downloading it on their child's head. There's no room for conversation. This child just ate Cheerios off the floor and is not sick. But we are saying to this child, you have to wash your hands. We're not thinking critically at all. We're actually recruiting new members to team right ideas. And that is what I mean about critical thinking. What would happen if this five-year-old said to you, well, I don't want to wash my hands. And instead of just adding, heaping on more expert opinion, well, Science says there are invisible germs lurking on your hands. You're going to eat them and get sick. What if you said, oh, what don't you like about washing your hands? Is it the wetness of the water? Is it the temperature? We could try different temperatures and see which one you like best. I'll just make a note here on this clipboard. Let's get a thermometer and test all the waters and see. Um, oh, you still don't like water? Should we try hand sanitizer? It dries really quick. Oh, you don't like that? What about a blow dryer? Did you know heat can kill germs? Maybe we could just blow dry your hands before dinner each night. Like, but do we do any of that? Do we let our kids do their own research, draw their own conclusions? And what would be wrong with just rolling the dice? You know what? Let's not wash your hands all week and see if you survive the meals. I mean, the truth is so much of what we say to our children is just hot air. It's just some tale we learned in our own community that we repeat to our children and we don't actually invest in the critical thinking that would help them grow to be independent thinkers, independent of us. Now, honestly, you can't do this experiment with everything. Sometimes you just got to tie their shoes and get them in the car is the goal. But what if we did it a couple times a month? What if we took them seriously instead of dismissing them and telling them what they should think? It even makes me think of uh, like my own relationship with my parents and I don't have any kids right now, but at some, at some point, you know, everybody experiences the thing where it's like, oh, I think I might think different about yes. my parents in this certain issue. And I know I'd be, I'd be curious for your commentary on this because what has helped me in that is that, 
you know, my parents have raised me to be an adult with a thinking mind and critically think, which nice. means that we're going to reach different conclusions on some things. And that is the way to honor my parents. Any, any thoughts on that? Oh God. I love that. You said it's a way to honor your parents. So often people spend way too much time having hurt feelings that their kids aren't a carbon copy of them. But what I always say to parents and those who are listening that are parents, ask yourself, just like you did, how many of your views are a carbon copy of your own parents, right? And how many of us still hold the identical set of views we had at age 15? We don't. We evolve. We grow. We want to be our own person. We don't want to be a carbon copy. Uh, there's been research done. This psychologist from Switzerland named Paul Tournier wrote a book years ago called The Adventure of Living. And he did research into religious families and almost to a family, children of religious parents who keep the same faith will switch denominations. So if they're in a liturgical community <laughs> growing up, they're going to be in one of those like get baptized in the ocean communities when they're an adult. If they were raised in this sort of like church as guitar band kind of environments, they're going to end up liturgical as adults. We may not reject our parents' values, but we are absolutely going to distill them into the kind of worldview that makes us feel like we are unique thinking human beings. Um, I remember my son when he was 15, he couldn't vote yet, obviously, and we're in Ohio, and there was a certain ballot measure. I'm not even going to say which one it was. And he was very persuaded about the pro view. And he got me a bunch of articles and all of yeah. his research. And he's a really smart kid. He's an adult now. He's a human rights lawyer from Columbia Law School. So that just gives you a view. He's a very smart person. So even at 15, persuasive, capable, good research. So he shared all this with me. And he's like, so mom, are you going to vote pro? And I said, no, I'm going to vote con. And tears sprang from his eyes. And he said, mom, I count on you to be logical. And I said to him, that's an amazing statement. The one thing you never asked me was, what was my position? We just started with yours, but here's the truth of the matter. I'm totally interested in your position. In fact, you made some persuasive arguments. I could imagine my position changing, but it has not changed yet. But what I want you to know is it's okay with me that we have completely different viewpoints on this topic. Like that's okay with me because it's a sign of a thinking mind. You're not just a carbon of me. Today, he's a full grown adult. He in fact is the one who helped me um, do research verification on raising critical thinkers. And you know he's had a huge shaping influence on a lot of my views because of being a quality thinker. So I think creating room in the relationship for those kinds of conversations, really critical. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Because I imagine that one of the casualties that can come from critical thinking is you can sometimes lose the relationship. And so oh, can you talk to me truly. about that? Yes. Yes. In fact, one of the assertions I make in the book is that we often think the dichotomy is between certainty and uncertainty. So I either know or I don't know yet. Right. But I make the assertion that that's the wrong dichotomy. It, for me, is certainty versus intimacy. Intimacy is the willingness to admit that there is more to know than I ever know, that there's always more to know. It's the mystery side of whatever relationship you're in. So if you imagine being married to someone for 50 years, 
what keeps it going is there's a certain mysteriousness about this person you know so well. You can continue to be surprised. You can continue to learn new things. That's what keeps a relationship alive. It's when we stop feeling that way that we run amok. And that is true with every subject under the sun. So when you have children, the aim is not to find agreement. It is to become fascinated. Mm. So your child has this position that's terrifying to you, that seems really wrong, that you really disagree with, that you voted against 12 times, become fascinated. Invite yourself to care about why your child or young adult thinks that way, not why they're wrong. Now, I'll give you an example from my own life. I have two parents. They're not married. I love them both dearly. I'm especially close to my mother because she has the capacity to go wherever I go in my thinking, whether or not she aligns with it. She'll hear me. Um, A great example of this occurred with my oldest son, Noah. He was, I guess, 15, 14, something like that. And he had started listening to heavy metal music and some of the songs I thought had lyrics I didn't approve of, you know, as a homeschooler, religious person. And uh, so my husband and I banned him listening. And then one day we found out that he was sneaking the music because that's what you do when you ban things. Yeah, it wasn't like he was sneaking crack cocaine. He was listening to Rage Against the Machine. I mean, you know, but I was not ready for him to be a teenager and I was being overly controlling. So we had a big explosion and kind of had to recalibrate the whole relationship. I was still nervous, though, around the music. My mother comes to Ohio from California to visit. And Noah has the music on and I'm starting to feel nervous that she's going to think I'm a terrible mother that he's listening to this music. And my mother says to Noah, hey, Noah, I've never heard this music before and I'm having a hard time understanding the lyrics. Could you show me the lyrics? Hmm. And he said, yeah, they're up in my bedroom. So they go upstairs and about an hour later, I walk by his open door and there's my mother laying on her stomach with the CD lyric booklet open and rage against the machine blaring. And they're like talking about what it means. And for me, that was like this moment of, oh, that's how you do this. Oh, that's how you do this. Meanwhile, my father and I, who love each other dearly, cannot talk about politics. If I even get near the subject, it is so stressful for him to imagine that I don't align with him. He can't talk to me about it. So we only talk about sports. We're close, but we're not intimate because we can't be because agreement is more important than knowing the person. Now, uh, I would be uh, curious to hear you because we all have we all have someone in our life who is very much like that. And you you desperately want the relationship to be more what you were saying, more intimate than than it is. and then it gets tricky into like you know setting boundaries and all of that stuff. I would I, right, I would right, just be right. curious to hear um, your your thoughts on what's helped you with that. Yeah. So a couple of things. One is if somebody is telling you how to be or how to think or how to behave, that is a time for setting boundaries. But one thing you can do with people that don't agree with you who have a more rigid unwillingness to allow you to have your beliefs is to give up your right to be known. Mm-hmm. And instead, flip the script on them. Be interested in them. One question you can ask a person who's dogmatic is, paint for me a picture of the beautiful world that you think this belief creates. 
paint for me a picture of this beautiful world that you believe this belief creates. Here's why. Usually when we're reacting to someone's other view, it's coming from the beautiful picture we've created with the beliefs we have. But people hold their viewpoints because they think they'll make life better. That's why they hold them. Even someone as heinous as Hitler thought he was improving the world through genocide. So by allowing someone to explain themselves to you, you might be surprised that you can even find a little bit of common ground or at least some sympathy for them. So I had this experience with a dude. <laughs> I'll be honest, dudes are harder. Uh, I, they are used to being right and approved of by the culture. And I'm just going to make that blanket statement. You all can disagree with me. But as a 60-year-old woman, I would say there's some substance to that. And I was in this conversation, as I often am, where it's couples, a guy, gal, guy, gal, right? So married couples, dating couples, whatever. And so there were like four couples and we were all having this conversation about politics. And as the night went on, the women all left. It was just me. And a couple of the, the nicer guys left and it ended being me and three dudes. And we're getting into this conversation and I suddenly figured out where they were coming from politically. And so what I just did instead is I got curious, like, well, tell me more about that. Well, how does that belief impact these people? Like, okay, I hear how this belief is working for you. When you think about that belief, how does it impact this group over here? How do you think that belief would impact a person like me? What do you think is a way to bring this into being? So anyway, I got into this conversation. <laughs> And finally, this one dude jumps to his feet and he says, Julie, you're just wrong. <laughs> and then he says, frankly, you can't understand my views. I think what we need is just a benevolent dictatorship for a little while so that you can understand how valuable these are. And I was like, dude, I haven't even asserted a view yet. I'm just asking you to consider, like, I want to understand the 360. So. I wasn't trying to be antagonistic. Some people will feel antagonized even by questions, but I tried to at least get to the inside and stay out of declaring back or, and, and I would stay away from things like, tell me more facts and data. People are persuaded by stories, not by data. So it, it, it's just my facts against your facts. That's most, most of these arguments. Yeah, what other, what other questions or, techniques or whatever, you know, things that you used has helped you in those conversations? Um, so here are a few things you can, you can ask. Ask for their source of authority. So if they say to you, you know, this is how this should be, like, I'll give you an example of a very contentious social issue, the abortion issue. Uh, the pro-life side and the pro-choice side are not even arguing about the same thing. They're not. The pro-life side is really dedicated to the fetus, to the life of the baby, the fetus, the embryo inside the mother. The pro-choice side is very much dedicated to the life of the mother. It's not to say there is an overlap. Obviously there is, but we're not even arguing about the same facts. So I like to ask people things like, what's your highest priority in this belief structure? What are you protecting? What's at stake for you? What goes away if your view is overturned? Like what loss? will be incurred? What is the danger or what are we putting at risk if we don't adopt your view? Those are the kinds of things that help people get to the heart of their attachments 
rather than just more information that we're arguing about. Man, that's so good. And I, I, I would imagine that allows you to be able to find common ground with the person. It can. Sometimes, sometimes you might not yeah. find any more common ground, but what you find is that they like you better <laughs> because they were primed for a big fight. And you're just in there being curious and who doesn't like to share all their detailed reasons for why their view is so great. So they'll just like you better. They'll like welcome you into the room. They won't hate you. Occasionally what I've noticed that happens, it's really moving. It doesn't happen very often. I'll be honest about this, but occasionally someone will turn around and say, well, wait a minute. So you don't see it this way. I don't. Well, how do you see it? Because you've given them so much room to kind of express their strident, strong position, they'll take that turn and think, well, wait a minute, maybe she has a story for how she views it that's as meaningful to her as mine is to me. And that's the foundation of critical thinking, understanding that the story that animates a belief is so sacred to the person. Even uh, people always say to me, oh, so is this an empathy growing method? No, you might luckily get some empathy for some people, but sometimes you're more horrified. And I, the way I verify this is um, we all love true crime. We love podcasts. We love serial. We loved watching uh, murder yeah. shows, uh, you know, the whatever murder shows. Not because we want more empathy, but to become more horrified that a person who shares, you know, literal humanity with us could be so ill-informed and create a completely different logic story where they think murdering this other person will actually improve their lives. We want to get it. We want to get it. It's not okay to just demonize people. If we just say he's an idiot, she's a jerk. What we're doing is we're saying, they're not human beings like me. I could never fall for the things they fell for. And that's just not true. It's just not true. Yeah, and that even, like that, that creates a, a hierarchy. In that too. That's right. Hmm. That's right. That's exactly hmm. right. And I think the danger in those cases um, is that we then start endowing our group with superior thinking skills and superior values. But really, if you scratch underneath any community, they have their own set of sins, right? And they have their own sort of um, hierarchical structure that oppresses. So we want to be mindful of that. And it's very important to admit that we do that. Uh, and I find that the way I get there is by being curious about a wide variety of people. The only way I can do it, honestly, is read widely, even when it's painful, yeah. right? Just or listen to radio that I wouldn't normally listen to. And I don't it, you can do that and not be a critical thinker. You can do it just to get yourself riled up and be annoyed at how awful and stupid the other people are. What I do as sort of a self-discipline now is I try to read or listen looking for the beautiful view of the world they think they're promoting. I try to give enough ground so that I can understand that picture. That's the goal. And if I'm not in that mood, then maybe don't read it or listen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, which is important to pay attention to also. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's okay to have places that reinforce your mindset. I mean, I'm on a Facebook group that's just about my political beliefs and it's a yeah. relief to be in a space where I get some agreement, right? You don't always have to be this person navigating these challenging spaces, but you brought up parents and mm -hmm. children, especially adult children and parents, I think is really challenging. And I would 
just welcome a shift in how the generations talk. And I think it starts with your own self-awareness, not expecting them to accommodate you. Yeah, I wanna go back to that self-awareness and even what you had mentioned with that story with your mom and your son and rage against the, yeah. the machine. And I can't remember ex exactly what you said, but you said something along the lines, if I noticed this reaction in yourself, yes. which triggered all of this yes. other stuff. Can you talk about like the importance of Ugh. even just learning what to pay attention to and look out for as it pertains to the things that are triggering us? Yes. Oh, thank you. I, you might be the first person to ask me that question. And it's literally the foundation of the whole book. So the reason I think I'm pretty good at these conversations now is I've been practicing for 25 years since the dawn of the internet. And I cannot tell you how many sleepless nights and how many times I was composing, you know, rebuttals in the shower against that horrible person, you know, keyboard warrioring, you know, and I started to notice, oh, wait, I'm reading this and my heart rate's going up. I'm reading this and I feel instantly angry. I'm reading this and I don't want to play with my kid right now because I'm so preoccupied. When that defensiveness and that outrage flare in me, when smugness and condescension come up in me, that's a moment where I have to actually pay attention to what's going on in me before I can give any kind of fair assessment to this other person. And I, when I was in grad school, um, I have a master's in theology. So you can imagine all the millions of arguments. We used to joke that it was a master's in capital N nothing, right? Because it's like God. So like, how are you studying something that like, what, how, what is this silly degree? But people have been writing volumes about this invisible thing yeah. forever and conflict, you know, to the point of inquisitions and wars and bloodbaths and all of that. And what I started to notice is that people get so invested in a way of seeing because it just strikes the heart of their identities. And so whenever I feel those things coming up, it's my identity that's at risk. Will I lose my people? Will I lose the group that claims me? Will I stop knowing who I am in this larger community? You know, I, I explained the other day to someone who was asking me, it kind of came as like a, 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 a light bulb moment. I said, most of our beliefs come to us as a package deal, sort of like a cable channel package right? You pay a little bit of money and you get all these channels you don't want, plus the ones you really want. So you become a Democrat or you become a Republican. It's prepackaged, right? They've, it's too many experts to so sort for ourselves. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm not even a historian or a very good one. I'm a little bit of one, but I'm not a very good one. I, I don't know math very well. I'm not an engineer. So I've got to trust doctors and engineers and scientists and all these people, but I'm afraid they might not align with my values. So I join a religious group or a not religious group. I join a political party and they do the vetting on my behalf. And then they tell me, here are the group beliefs. Here are the experts we trust. Here are the ones we hate. And we just like buy it as a cable package. Critical thinking means even vetting that being willing to have your own reaction. You could be watching your favorite cable news channel, agreeing with everything and still dislike certain commentators, still not agree with all the perspectives. We have permission to dissent. 
And we spend so much time telling each other that dissenting is not allowed in our groups. The best thing you can do for your children is cultivate a community of dissenters. Allow them to not agree with you on things you think are really important. Man, I love that. I love that so much. Um, I, I, I'm really, I really want to hear, you know, you mentioned, first of all, I didn't know that you had a master's in theology, which is, uh, which I love that even more. Um, I, I would be curious on your thoughts on, uh, and we, we've talked a little bit about for the, for the religious side and on the political side, but it just seems yeah. like those two categories in and of themselves make conversations Ugh. so difficult and are viewed as so dangerous. Yes. <laughs> and can you talk, just talk yes. about, yeah, just talk about that. Oh, I totally can. So um, I was from a fairly evangelical religious background and the internet came along. I always say the internet ruins everything. I um I was my mid 30s, you know, like 36 years old when it started and all of my friends were homeschoolers. And we were scattered all over the country, much smaller movement back then, not even a million families in the United States. So we were all desperate for support and advice and uh, shared experiences. So the internet opened and I always say the homeschoolers were the first ones to barge through the doors. We all found each other on like two websites and we created a million Yahoo email list back then called eGroups. And we start talking. We were as a group, mostly white, mostly stay-at-home married moms, mostly Christian, mostly uh, probably conservatives. And I could not believe how unkindly we could treat each other. We were arguing over things like paper versus cloth diapers, OxyClean, breastfeeding. But if you got near religion, it was a full-on bloodbath. And I'm talking about people who supposedly agreed yep. on the core tenets. Yep. They're arguing about baptism and communion and whether what kind of music to have at church or whether to even have it. And, and it was serious business and politics too. And I asked myself, wait a minute, when I go to a park day, this never happens. Why is it happening online in a way it doesn't happen in person? This is when I first got interested in thinking. And over the next couple of decades, what I discovered was that we take these pieces of identity very, very seriously because we're either in the group or we are not in the group. The in and out definition is extreme. And if you ask questions, we're often told, I remember being told all the time that you could ask any question, but it turns out that's not yep. true because I started asking them. And uh, that was not the reaction I got. In fact, I was very public at the time with some of my questions and it ended up getting me kicked out of the state homeschool organization, the homeschooling um, conferences that were national based on whatever their ideas of faith were. And this was even while I was getting a degree. It wasn't like I was, you know, in true. Well, I'm sure they thought I was in heresy. But, but the point of my saying all that is that, yes, religion and politics seem to amplify what we feel is our right to shame people for having questions. And what I would say is this. Whenever you're in a group that controls your right to have sincere questions, it's a toxic community. So I, will, I would make that as a declarative statement because the freedom to think sometimes helps you reinforce and find better footing for a belief. Sometimes it brings fresh insight or fresh practice to a belief. And sometimes it overturns something that was not serving you. 
and the most healthy communities allow for that. So my book is dedicated to my Aunt June, who is no longer with us. She was a nun. She married a priest. So clearly they left their orders. And when I was going through a lot of questions about my belief system, uh, I got to the point where there was no one I could talk to in my local community without it causing like anxiety and uh, threat and upset. And I finally wrote to her. She was a professor of ethics and religion at one of the University of California schools. And I opened my letter to her saying, I have questions and I think you're not afraid of questions. I hope that's true. And when she wrote back, her opening line was, there is no question I'm afraid of. And at the time it was so stunning. That's when I realized I was in a somewhat toxic community because I had to go outside of it to even have the safety to ask a meaningful question. And she was actually willing to give me answers she didn't even hold herself to consider. So for me, that's why the book is dedicated to her. It was this recognition that um, I, I have a quote I'm known for, but I, I thought I got it from someone else, but I can't remember who it's from. Uh, but I often say, you can't cheat the dark gods. You can't cheat the dark gods. So the pretense that you don't have a question when you really do is not protecting you. And in a community, if they're telling you you can't have those questions, you're not protecting faithlessness or uncertainty or confusion. Those are just being driven underground and they are working their way in an unhealthy manner. They'll get, they'll squirt out in another way. You know, it's like telling someone you can't be divorced and then you're actually in a very unhealthy, dangerous marriage. Eventually someone's going to go have an affair just to end it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like we want to be able to ask the scary questions because it's healthier, it's safer in the long run. And, and they're actually there. They don't go away by not asking them is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I would be curious on um, just your, on more of your thoughts on it. It seems like um, whenever, whenever we are afraid to ask questions, we are almost committed to something besides the truth in that. Yes. Because like, yes. again, this, this is just how I've, I've thought Ooh. about it. Um, because if we are, if we are committed to the truth then we shouldn't be afraid of asking a question because it's just a process of learning what, what the truth is. I would just be curious on your thoughts on that. And, um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's great because a lot of times, especially in religious communities, what I'll hear back is, well, the truth is independent of me, right? There's, there's an absolute truth, Julie. And you're saying that there isn't, that it's all relative and it's all based on what I think to which I say who decided that the absolute truth you believe is acceptable? Who it was it you? Because there is a subjective choice that everyone makes. Uh, even to believe in absolute mm -hmm. truth is a subjective choice. There are people who don't believe in it and there are people who do. Oops, sorry about that. And there are people who do. And the people who do believe, do you want me to do that again? Let me do yeah, that again. You're good. There are people who are making a subjective choice, whether it is to believe in absolute truth or not absolute truth, but it is because of the person that lives behind your eyes, thinking about processing information that they're like, yeah, you know what? Absolute truth now does make sense to me. 
that's subjective. And we can call it like the spirit of God or whatever. You can do that. You can say that it even is. And yet it's still you assenting to that entire constellation. And that's the piece that I think we sometimes miss in our craving for certainty in our very unstable world. The one thing I wish we could rely on is our confidence that it's okay to be an I. It's okay to read and wonder and shift and one day really find something convincing and another day less so. I wish that would be our ground that we stood on. Yeah. It even 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 makes me think of uh just one of the ways that I've I've processed it too and of realizing, you know, be, being a Christian myself, um of realizing and, and believing in absolute truth that it is object yeah. it is outside of myself. And so there is almost no way that I can know what absolute truth is. And it I call it the mystery of God in it. Understood. And in fact, I remember in one of my theology classes when I was a graduate student, someone said, you know, okay, professor, you're saying that we can't know all the details about God. So therefore you're saying, you know, it's a subjective thing. He goes, but there's an objective reality and it's behind this, you know, let's say I'm holding up a fist. So the guy held up a fist and he goes, and let's say it's hiding behind this, you know, big cloth that's hiding this rock of God. Um, But the reality is there, whether we understand it fully or not, whether we can define it or not. And here's what my professor said. (laughs) I loved it so much. He said, Yes. And at that point, it's what we say about that, that creates the reality. Because if we have no other way of, so it's our definitions, it's our belief structures. So even if you want to say something exists that is way beyond me, that I can't define, that I don't know, we talk about it in words. And it's those words that shape what we think. And it's those words that create wars. So the the reality is and I know this is sounding very postmodern, but hello, we're in the, like the postmodern moment. I can't wait for what comes next. I don't exactly know. But what we're saying is, what we're admitting is that power structures are created by the way we use language in each of these domains. And the work of deconstruction is to admit that. It doesn't mean that any of the power structures are all universally wrong. It just means we've got to be mindful that every time we say this, we're also implying a not this. And what is what does that mean? Who is harmed? Who is benefited? Who gets to make decisions? Who doesn't? Who's doing the interpreting? You know, my opening chapter in the book is called Says Who? And the very basic question to ask is, who's telling the story? Yeah. Who's telling it? Who doesn't get to tell the story? That's a great question. Yeah. And it even gets, it brings to mind things like tone as well and of how yes. how are you communicating your ideas um and just like this picture of like are are you are you open-handed or are you closed fist and and just just all of that stuff in it that's yeah. right yeah exactly and in fact i love that you brought up tone because there can be a belief communicated by one person with condescension and from another person it can feel like grace And I think those are sometimes what are difficult as well. Someone will marshal a certain belief structure and you can almost not tolerate it because the way the person is conveying it feels oppressive just in their tone. Uh, We say this all the time in homeschooling. I always say you can have all the right principles and ruin it with tone of voice. 
right? You can be child-led and trying to create this loving environment and curiosity-driven. And if you sound short or sharp or a little dismissive with your child, they won't be able to read any of that. All they'll read is that they don't matter to you. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to, uh, you mentioned your Aunt June. And and I would yeah. love uh, to hear, if, if you can even remember, um, what were the things that you just noticed about her that made you go, you know what, I, I think I can trust her. I think that she will handle my questions well. Oh, Lee, you asked me great questions. Oh, and I love thinking about her because she's so precious to me. So what was interesting is I was a fairly um, opinionated, let's put it kindly, so probably strident is a better word, about the beliefs I had when I was the young upstart 20-something, 30-something, right? So in my 20s and 30s. And my aunt, who had been literally, you know, clergy, right? She was a nun and then got her PhD from Temple in religion and ethics. Somehow I thought I knew more than her. So I would have these conversations with her and she was never impatient with me. Tolerant as the day is long, so fascinated and curious, like really modeling the things I'm talking about here. And then she would even like try on my beliefs. Like we got in a whole discussion. I remember one time about baptism and she was just so fascinated by the way I understood it differently than the way she did. No judgment, just fascination. Um, she had a wide array of friends from all different backgrounds. And when I would watch her, she had this incredible patience. And so I think when I suddenly hit the wall and I was like filing through my mental Rolodex about who might listen to me, I was like, wait a minute. She's a university professor who has a wide array of friends who has never seen me as an idiot. Mm, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. So when I thought about her, I thought, I think she'll approach, here's the thing. I thought she'd approach my questions dispassionately. Mm. I thought she would come at them from sort of an academic loving mindset, not trying to corral me into a new set of beliefs. And that's exactly what she did. She gave me options. She sent me on my own research path. She didn't answer the questions. She's like, well, these are the four people I've read and they all speak about it in different ways. <laughs> oh, wow. So there are four opinions on that. Yikes. I thought I was just finding out the right one. Yeah. It was amazing. Um, yeah. I loved it. Any Anything else that she did that really helped you? She um, served really good food. So whenever we went to her house, she was really great at like the five o'clock hour, there'd be like cheese and crackers and wine. And the whole environment was like curious and almost like a salon, you know, like we knew we were going to get in these meaty conversations. Uh, and she would say she was very respectful. My um, husband at the time was also university professor of English uh, and also a zealot like me. And she just had this way of wanting our opinions. So she'd say, I've been thinking about this. How do you guys think about it? So she might pick something like nuclear disarmament and we'd be like, oh, uh, well, I think like this, but she's over there like well-read, yeah. right? Her specialty, believe it or not, was torture. Mm. So she would write about like, um, she got very interested in what happened in Central America in the early 80s, late 70s. And that's a whole thing. Like a person who has dealt with kidnappings and the, the, the lost mothers and all those people, right? In Central America, from those firsthand accounts, 
Like this stuff stops being academic. Your theology stops being about a statement of faith. It was powerful. So I think her engagement, the food, her kindness, never argumentative, fascinated. These are all things I try to be because of her. I got one other thing I want to ask you, but before that, is there anything that we haven't covered or or haven't talked about that just comes to mind that you want to make sure that we mention? Yeah, you do have time. I do have one more thing. The, the other thing that, you know, we're sort of like circling the landing strip of is a concept I learned about during my research. I reached out to one of my friends who is a PhD at uh, Penn State, and he and I used to have long theological conversations. So I reached out to him when I was working on this book, and I'm like, Drew, is there any research into this notion of Um, understanding each other's viewpoints that I'm not aware of. I want to be involved in what's current. And he said, actually, there is. There's a researcher from University of um, Pittsburgh named uh, Iris Marion Young. And she wrote a book called Intersecting Selves. And she promotes a concept she calls asymmetrical reciprocity, which I talk about in my book. And the thinking of it goes like this. A lot of times when we are seeking to understand the other, we've been encouraged to put ourselves in someone else's shoes. We'll say, walk a mile in my shoes, Mm -hmm. right? Or try to imagine life through my lens. That is valuable to a certain extent. It's especially valuable if you have possibly lived a similar life. So, you know, an NFL ex-NFL player can really imagine what it's like to be a current NFL player in a way that I never can. So there can be value in that, but too frequently, when we try to imagine ourselves in somebody else's shoes, we do it from our current set of circumstances because we can't actually embody or envision what it really feels like. So there was this one study that um, Iris Young cites in her book, where in Oregon, the state was getting ready to offer medical treatments to both disabled and able-bodied people. And they did a phone survey to see if they should make them equally available to disabled. And able-bodied people replied that if they were disabled, they'd rather be dead. So therefore those um, treatments would not be valuable. And as Iris points out, they were coming from a fully able-bodied life. They could not envision meaningful life in a wheelchair or blind or deaf. And as a result, Oregon decided not to offer the medical treatment to disabled people. This is the kind of limited belief structure that can happen when we think we're being empathetic. When you see the research, disabled people have a very high rate of desire to live, lower rate of suicide than able-bodied people, and wanted those treatments and did get them. So when we're looking at another group, if they're not your group, if they're the group you're not from, What Iris recommends is a stance of wonderment. This is what I mean by fascination. Instead of jumping to conclusions or trying to imagine life from their perspective, admit to yourself that there is an edge you do not know and always ask from the stance of respectful wonder. So let's say we're talking, let's say you're a pro-life person, you're talking to someone who had an abortion and your tendency is, well, I've had five babies. I would never want to do that. It must've been horrible for you. When the person comes back and tells you how it was for them and that it wasn't horrible, it's your responsibility to believe them. 
to not say, well, psychologically, she's in denial, right? And vice versa. Mm -hmm. It goes both ways. I just pulled that yeah. one out of a hat. Does, do you hear yeah. what I'm saying? So for me, this conversation, when we're talking about how do we engage with people who really see the world differently, it's recognizing that there is a certain um, percentage of what they experience we will never access that animates the view they hold. Uh, the last thing I want to ask you is, what are you thinking about or learning about right now that's captured your, your curiosity or your attention? Oh, that is amazing. So I'm reading the book by Maria Popova called Figuring. She uh, is well known for her amazing online newsletter called Brain Pickings. And in this book, she details the lives of mostly females, although there are some men, uh, in science. And she has this powerful way of interconnecting them to literature and historical moments and religion and politics of the time. It's this amazing tapestry. And I'm just fascinated to learn the stories of people who are completely off my radar. So that's what I'm reading right now. What's something from that that is like standing out to you right now or something like, oh man, I can't like, what's a takeaway? Oh yeah. So in chapter one, she talks about Johannes Kepler and he is someone who understood that the earth was not the center of the solar system, right? So he wrote this like weirdly sci-fi oriented novel to try and really capture the imagination of his contemporaries while he was doing all the science that was Copernican and Galilean. Um, and he got in so much trouble with the church for it that they persecuted his mother and called her a witch and she got put in prison for like decades and would not recant that her son was crazy and finally was let out. They did not kill her. But I thought that was fascinating that by proxy, they persecuted his mother for even just giving birth to him. And, and the fact that he wrote like a sci-fi to try and reach the imaginations when direct science wasn't working, this is all stuff I didn't know. Totally yeah, That is such an extreme, like even as I'm listening to you, I'm like, wow, that is an extreme response to not only go after the person, but the people who are close to the person. Yes. And treating the mother like she was a witch. And of course she was working interestingly in medicinals and herbals to treat, you know, medical problems. You look back and you just think, where would the world be today if women were allowed to read, write, make money and do science and history earlier? Like maybe we'd be better <laughs> off. <laughs> Instead of telling them they're all witches. Sorry, uh, I have a little bias showing through here. <laughs> no, that's great. Uh, well, Julie, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book, Raising Critical Thinkers, and keep up with you and all that stuff. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? So my company is Brave Writer. So if you're looking for like um, writing support for your kids or you're a homeschooler, even if you're not a homeschooler, we've got online classes and materials there. Uh, and then to get the book, go to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com. There is a free downloadable book club guide that you can download and then get your you know six friends together and actually have hard conversations with the support from the guide of the book. I would love you to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thank you for doing the work. Thank you, Caleb. Okay. So coming out of that conversation, there is just so many takeaways, so many things uh, that I could mention. I absolutely love that conversation with Julie and we are definitely going to be doing a part two 
at some point um, just because it was so much fun. And we barely scratched the surface of all the things that we could talk about pertaining to critical thinking and pertaining to her book, uh, Raising Critical Thinkers as well. I love I love this book. It's one of my favorite books that I've read this year and highly recommend it. Um, but here's some of my things that I took away from uh, the conversation with Julie. The first one is this, is just the, I don't know if, desire or just being willing to encourage the curiosity in the people around us of helping them um, maybe even discover what they're passionate about through their curiosity you know it's through curiosity that um, that we discover um, the, the the subjects that we love and that we care about and I love what she even had to say about um, you know, intimacy over certainty. I remember reading that part in the book and just being, you know, just struck uh, by that. And that curiosity only not only helps us discover the subjects that we might love to explore, but it can help us love other people and help us love the people in our lives uh, more as well. And, you know, the other thing that I think I just want to mention uh, real quick and like I said, there's there's so many different things that we could cover throughout this book. Um, actually, I do want to mention the question wall that she said. Man, that's something that I'm I'm gonna have to uh, keep track of of the questions that I'm exploring um, that either have been posed to me or that have been um, that have been explored or that I'm I'm even wondering about as well, which is you know part of uh, what we do here on the on the learners corner. You know, I'm trying to learn things and explore things. Crit- this critical thinking thing is very much um, an expression of that for me. It's an idea that I've been wanting to learn more about, and so naturally, I find people that I could bring onto the podcast to talk about uh, all of those different subjects, and we'll continue to do so. And you know, I think the other thing um, for me is and you know she mentioned two specific people that helped her a lot um as it pertains to developing her own uh developing her curiosity but even maybe even more so um learning from them of how to uh how to handle other people's questions and you know she talked about her mom and her aunt june as well and that they were people who were able to handle other people's questions and that that they didn't uh, lead through giving their own opinion or giving their own thoughts or even trying to convince or trying to coerce someone else they they led with curiosity and diving into and exploring what other people thought about subjects and they dived into um their um the, the other person's passions and the things that they really cared about. And, and it makes, it makes me think back to, um, an example that we talked about here on the podcast several months ago with, uh, with Hosanna Wong in her episode. And she talked about, you know, in order to connect with her brother, she talked about getting involved and interested in his, uh, fascination and curiosity around Marvel comics. And, and just thinking that that is the challenge I think for all of us and the people who um, who we love and who we care about and getting involved and interested in the things that they cared about and it's particularly challenging when you may not care about those things as well but those are a couple of the things that um, have got me thinking about this episode and this conversation with Julie and so I would love to hear from you as well on the things that you're thinking about the things that you're learning from 
And the best way to reach out to me is Learners Corner Podcast at gmail.com, whether it be um, for the things that you're learning from or things that you would love us to cover on the podcast as well. Would love to hear from you. Also, make sure uh, that you hit subscribe and follow or whatever that is. If you could leave a rating and write a review, that would mean a lot. Also, um, if you want to continue to learn more from some of the uh, things that I'm learning from, you know, check out the blog, check out the newsletter, all of that stuff, and I'll be shooting you. Um, you know, I give you some of the best things that I'm learning from, some of the best resources and all of that stuff. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. Thank you to Julie for being on the podcast today. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. That's all that I have for you today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.